it doesn't serve the consumer's best interest to have the president calling into question the legitimacy of the vast majority of financial professionals who are dedicated to waking up every day to do what's right for their clients. This is 401k specialist editor-in-chief Brian Anderson, and this is the 401k specialist podcast. The last week has been a crazy busy one for the retirement industry with the public release of the Department of Labor's Retirement Security Rule that seeks to update the definition of an investment advice fiduciary under ERISA. Today, we're going to hear from an organization that has been one of the most vocal critics of the new proposed rule to get an idea of why they think it's unnecessary and represents a significant regulatory overreach. Joining us today is Jason Berkowitz, Chief Legal and Regulatory Affairs Officer at the Insured Retirement Institute, the leading trade association for the insured retirement industry. Last week, Jason provided an insightful media briefing just after the DOL proposal was released, and we wanted to bring him on the podcast to share some of those insights and get a better understanding of why the IRI is opposed to the DOL's retirement security rule, while some other organizations, including the American Retirement Association and the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard, to name a couple, have come out in support of the DOL proposal. Welcome to the 401k Specialist Podcast, Jason. Thank you very much, Brian. It's great to be here. All right. Well, let's jump right into this. IRI is on the record as saying that the rules that are already in place are sufficient and should be robustly enforced to get bad actors out of the industry and that the new proposal is unnecessary, redundant, and is going to have a significant adverse impact on the ability of lower and middle income workers to get professional retirement planning assistance and access to guaranteed lifetime income products. I think you have a lot of them, but uh, what what would you say is IRI's main point of contention with the controversial proposal? Yeah, you know, Brian, I, I think before we even get into the substance of the proposal and our concerns there, our most significant concern right now is the fact that we have a president of the United States who just less than a year ago signed new retirement reform legislation that was designed to make annuity products more available to more consumers so that they could have access to these products to help support their retirement of job planning. And now that same president is going on giving a, a public statement where he drags the annuity industry through the mud, mocks those who offer and sell them, characterizing many of them as criminals and con men. And we are extremely troubled by this. These are our products that are designed to provide a wide range of options for retirement savers to achieve their goals. Uh, not every annuity product is right for every consumer. And in fact, that's exactly why it's so important that they have access to uh, a qualified financial professional who can help them understand these products and decide whether and how they should be incorporated into their financial plan. And to have the president publicly characterizing these products and the people who sell them in the way that he did uh, is going to have a very ad adverse impact, we are afraid, on the average consumer who may see these quotes from the president and think, well, why is my advisor recommending this thing? Maybe I shouldn't be working with them. Uh, it doesn't serve the consumer's best interest to have the president calling into question the legitimacy of the vast majority of financial professionals who are dedicated to waking up every day to do what's right for their clients. All right. And I realize this is a 500-page rule, and you probably haven't had a chance to go through it with a fine-tooth comb yet. But can you tell us about uh, your understanding of what happens to the five-part test under this proposal? 
Sure. Yeah. From again, as you said, it is preliminary because it is lengthy and complex. But as we've read through it so far, it appears that what they are doing is taking the five-part test, which requires that you have financial advice provided that is personalized to the consumer on provided on a regular basis based on a mutual understanding between the advisor and the client that the the advice being provided will be a primary basis for the client's decision making. If all of those factors exist today, that individual becomes a fiduciary under ERISA, appropriately so, and becomes subject to all of the requirements and conditions that go with that status. Uh, What the department did in 2016 and what they are doing now is eliminating the regular basis, mutual understanding, and primary basis elements of that test in essentially saying any financial professional who provides personalized financial advice for a fee to a retirement saver is a fiduciary under ERISA. Uh, and, And that's not the way that fiduciary status is supposed to work. In the Fifth Circuit decision in 2018, the court made very clear that when Congress enacted ERISA and incorporated that fiduciary duty, they were doing so based on the common law understanding of fiduciary status, which arises when you have a relationship of trust and confidence. And the concepts of regular basis, mutual understanding, and primary basis essentially serve as proxies for that concept of trust and, and, and confidence. So by removing those and essentially opening the floodgates to bring almost every type of advisor into fiduciary status, they are disregarding what the Fifth Circuit said and uh, you know, essentially forcing more people to bear the burdens and responsibilities of fiduciary status, but really with no added consumer protections, because all of those people, in our view, are already subject to a best interest standard other under either the SEC's regulation best interest, if they're securities professionals, or under the best interest model regulation adopted by the National Association of Insurance Commissioners uh, a couple of years ago, which has now been put into place in 40 states and expected to reach uh, all 50 by the end of uh, next year. So it's unnecessary, adds un- uh, unnecessary legal risks and burdens to advisors uh, and will ultimately make it harder for them to be able to serve the lower and middle income people that most need their advice. Okay, let's let's take a quick look now at PTE 2020-02. You said during the press briefing a few days back that the department is clearly trying to drive as many financial professionals into the framework of PTE 2020-02 as possible. Can you tell us about the problems you see with this? Yeah, I, I think the, the main problem that I see with trying to drive everyone into one framework is that it's not what Congress intended. When Congress created the concept of prohibited transactions under ERISA, which means if you are a fiduciary, if you trigger that five-part test, you are not allowed to recommend any product to a consumer if what you're recommending will impact how much you get paid. That's considered a conflict of interest. Congress authorized the department to issue exemptions from those rules when they determined that the circumstances were appropriate, and then they could develop and impose appropriate conditions on the availability of those exemptions. That process was designed to be flexible and adaptable so that the conditions and requirements could be conformed to various different types of products, distribution channels, all the different variables that go into determining what need to be in place to effectively protect consumers. What the department is doing under the pretense of creating a quote-unquote level playing field is saying we're creating a one-size-fits-all 
These are the conditions that all advice about financial matters that go to retirement savers have to follow. And it doesn't matter what kind of product you're selling or what kind of advisor you are. And that is inconsistent with what the with what Congress created under ERISA. And it really creates unnecessary challenges uh, where some of the requirements that they're going to put in place here, and, and I, I'm still working through the details of, of what they're doing on 202 but my sense is that some of the additional burdens that they're putting on will be more problematic for some uh, segments of the industry than others. Uh, and so we, you know, we'll be watching closely to see as we, as we dig into this, you know, is that something that, you know, our initial instinct is correct on? And, and if so, how are we going to comment on that in our, in our letter and our public testimony and so forth? All right. You also made a point during your press briefing that the 60-day comment period is completely insufficient, uh, particularly given all the holidays that fall in these last two months of the year. We know there's going to be a lot of comments and input from industry stakeholders. Are you optimistic that the comment period will be extended? And do you anticipate there being a lot of pressure to extend it? Well, there certainly will be a lot of pressure uh, to extend it. We're going to be pushing very hard, as are uh, a number of other industry organizations that we've been in communications with. Um, you know, whether they're going to grant it or not is, is difficult to predict. But I can tell you that the basis on which we're making that request is, is on a few different items. One is just the sheer volume of this thing, 500 pages of total material that has to be read and digested. You know, for an individual company, that's a big enough hurdle to have everybody that needs to read it and understand it come together and decide what their company's position is. For industry groups like mine, where we represent over 130 companies, we then have to take all of their feedback and coalesce it to produce a concise and coherent uh, message on behalf of the association, uh, and that is an additionally, you know, challenging process with with such lengthy documents. Um, more importantly than that, even and that, that's just a logistical, practical consideration. More importantly, though, is this is incredibly consequential. This is not a minor rule change. This is not something that is, you know, just sort of working around the fringes. This is a wholesale change to the overall structure of the way investment advice is provided to retirement savers and to expect the public to be able to provide meaningful comments on something that consequential in what is essentially going to amount to about 39 actual working days is absurd. It's also out of line with past practice. When the department issued their 2010 proposal, it had a 90-day comment period, which was then extended for an additional, I think, 15 or 30 and then that was followed by a public hearing, and then the comment period was reopened for another 15 days. In 2015, when they proposed the rule that was ultimately adopted before it was vacated, they offered up a 75-day comment period, which was ultimately extended to 90, followed by a public hearing, and then an additional 15 days. Here, they're squeezing into 39 working days a comment period that is interrupted by Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving, they're pushing the public hearing to be occurring in that time period instead of after the comment period, as they have in the past. So altogether, it is incredibly difficult to imagine how people can get, you know, provide the type of feedback that they need so that they can make an appropriate decision about how to go forward. Right. All right. I know in this in this short form podcast, we can't touch on everything about this wide ranging proposal. 
But before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? The other thing I just would mention, you know, we talked about PTE 202002. The other exemption that is critically important here is PTE 8424. And, and that's an exemption that's been in place since 1977. It's been updated a couple of times over the years. Uh, that is primarily used for the insurance space. And there has been no evidence presented that any of the consumers who receive products under the terms and conditions of that exemption have been harmed in any way. And yet the department is proposing to significantly scale back the availability of that exemption to only independent insurance producers. And I'll explain why that's important in a minute. But they're limiting the availability of this for independent insurance producers who are only selling non-securities insurance products. And those people still need that, that, that exemption, but there's, in our view, no reason why 8424 should not continue to exist in its current form for all sales of annuities because it's been working for 40 plus years. So we're not sure that there's a legitimate reason to, to make the changes. For the independent producers, it's particularly important because one of the requirements under 202002 is that you have a financial institution like an insurance company agree to serve as your co-fiduciary with respect to the advice you're providing. But if you're an independent producer, you're not affiliated with a particular insurance company, you're licensed to sell in multiple states for multiple different carriers, there's not one company that could serve as your overall co-fiduciary and your, your conduct and ensure that it aligns with the standards. And so, you know, what they have done here is they've preserved 8424 and avoided the requirement for having a co-fiduciary by instead allowing for supervision of independent producers similar to what is contemplated under the NAIC model. And that's, that's great, but they have also added on significant new conditions on 8424 and, as I said, limited the availability of it. So, you know, while there is a glimmer in, in one slice of that, overall the picture on 8424 is, is very disconcerting. All right. Well, Jason Berkowitz from the Insured Retirement Institute, this has been eye-opening and thank you for joining us today on the 401k Specialist Podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. It was great to be here. 